Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey guys, I'm Courtney. I'm Joy Marie. Welcome to Job Logs, mini sewed edition. Yes. So we're just going to take a little short, quick session to kind of get you through the week. And we have a very special episode, a very special guest. I'll let Joy intro. Yes. So today I got to interview my dad, which was Aww. amazing, for a special Father's Day episode. We talk about his career, some of his lessons for me, and his lessons to young professionals. Yeah, he in has general. such a fascinating career. He does, and he's a he's a bit of a talker. <laughs> so I'll preface Explain that. So but much. yes, yes, very excited. My biggest professional inspiration. So here's the interview. Hi, Dad. Hi, girl. Happy Father's Day. Thank you. I'm calling from Brooklyn, my apartment. Where are you right now? Right now, I'm in Juba, South Sudan. Well, thank you for doing this interview with me. This is fun because uh, it's Father's Day and I consider you, well, obviously you're my dad, <laughs> but I also consider you my first professional mentor of sorts. Oh, wow. Yeah, I feel like I learned everything well, I learned a lot of professionalism from you, I would say. Well, that's nice to hear. Thank you. I feel like you've always been our dad, but, you know, Aaron and I, my brother, but you're also, like, very business-like, too. Like, you send long emails <laughs> to us, and you've always done that since we grew up, or lengthy text messages with lots of I good vocabulary. You. I've always felt that, uh, you know, writing or speaking is like uh, cooking. Uh, you can throw in all sorts of ingredients, salt, water, <laughs> you name it, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's got to taste well. So that's the way I write. That's the way I speak. And if you have a good command of uh, the language, then you can you can uh, alternate the way you do things. Yeah, that's true. I'm glad we're talking. I wanted to talk with you because I think you've had an interesting career over the last 30-something years, I think, or probably beyond. Um, and I know it's a field that's very interesting to a lot of people that are interested in humanitarian work as well. So tell us very briefly what you do, what has taken you to Juba, South Sudan, and how you got into the field, how you got interested in the first place. Well, uh, as you know, I work for the UN Refugee Agency. Uh, I've been with this agency for the past 22 years. Uh, but before that, I worked for uh, the humanitarian agencies in Washington called Africa and another agency, World Vision International. So I did 11 and a half years before joining the UN, which I've been in for the past 22 years. Um, wow, and that's um, and that was DC, right? Would you say that you 
worked there by design because I know DC is kind of a big political humanitarian nonprofit hub. Well, I, growing up as a child, I was always interested in development work, helping people. Uh, mm-hmm. Even in high school, I used to uh, participate in the Voluntary Work Camp Association of Ghana. I traveled mm-hmm. to the northern part of the country to help communities to build rural health centers and schools. Uh, but I didn't realize that that was what I was going to pursue in life until uh, after undergraduate when uh, I came across a professor who happened to be my advisor who, after talking to me, uh, guided me in pursuing uh, a career in uh, humanitarian work and international development. When I arrived in the U.S., my desire was to pursue a career in diplomacy uh, and to go back and join the foreign service. But regrettably, in 1979, there was a coup d'etat in Ghana. In 1983, there was a coup d'etat. And, uh, oh, really? So, yes. So um, I decided to pursue something else. So I did uh, an, un- an undergraduate in international development studies. And then when my advisor at the University of Iowa, after I transitioned from Chicago to Iowa, uh, directed me to pursue this career. So with all my earnest interest, I followed his uh, guidance, and I'm glad I did. Yeah, that's awesome. And so was he the one that kind of told you the blueprint of what to study as a master's degree? Because you did uh, international, is it international disaster development? I forget the title of it, but you did that all the way in Vermont, I remember. And I think you told me about a, a a program you did in Wisconsin as well? Was he the one that kind of guided you to those programs? No. Uh, he basically told me about the School for International Training in Brattleboro, Vermont, which is uh, located two hours from Boston. And so I followed through on that advice and ended up in that school where I did my undergraduate in International Development Administration. Uh, The emphasis was on international development. And uh, after that course, I ended up in Washington, D.C., where I uh, uh, got a job with uh, uh, the NGO uh, called Africa. Uh, Africa was an African-American established international humanitarian and development agency, uh, which was involved at the time in food production water resource development, health care, and refugee assistance in Africa. Uh, whilst working for that organization, uh, the UN in Geneva, uh, the UN Refugee Agency, uh, selected me and offered me an opportunity to participate in a disaster management training uh, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and this was in 1987. And oh, so, okay, when I was born. Yes. So um, after that study, uh, I came back to continue my work with this um, humanitarian and development agency based in Washington for four and a half years, uh, essentially as a program manager responsible for the operations in Ethiopia, Somalia, and Kenya. Uh, 
so after doing that for four and a half years, uh, the organization actually uh, appointed me as the director, the country director in Ethiopia. And so in 1988, I moved and went to live in Ethiopia. Um, you were one year old. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I continued doing that work, uh, which had a lot of uh, different uh, uh, sectors. Uh, we were building an irrigation uh, project in a place called uh, uh, Waldia on the Gimbora River uh, and diverting the water into an agricultural land area for food production as part of the effort to reduce, uh, you know, the impact of farming and drought so that farmers in that river valley uh, could produce food throughout the year. In addition to that, we were also uh, building rural health centers in remote areas to provide access to villagers who would otherwise not have access to medical facilities. And mm -hmm. then uh, I also developed, uh, in my capacity as a country director, proposals uh, which got us funding from uh, the UN Refugee Agency to uh, drill boreholes at that time in 1988 in the uh, Etan and Gambela Funido refugee camps for 240,000 Sudanese refugees. Uh, wow. So uh, it's, it's, I'm not surprised that after all these years, 1988, 89, 90, uh, I'm now actually here in Juba, South Sudan, uh, working for the UN Refugee Agency, so dealing with refugees and uh, people who have returned from refuge in other parts of the country, uh, in this country. It's a pleasure and an honor to be of service to these people. Yeah, it's really amazing. How old were you when you worked with Africa and first moved to D.C.? Uh, I must have been around uh, 25, 26. See, that's um, crazy to me because I'm 28, and I can't imagine uprooting my whole life and moving to a different country to do that kind of work. Well, I was uh, very driven uh, with compassion. Remember that. In 1984-85, we had the uh, the severe drought and famine in Ethiopia and the East and the Horn of Africa. Uh, it was during that period that Michael Jackson and Bob Geldof and all the famous musicians came together and sang the song, We Are the World, to raise resources uh, to mitigate some of the suffering. And so it was a period of uh, tremendous challenge. and. Uh, I guess my innate desire and passion were, uh, uh, you know, were stirred up to an extent where I couldn't stop but be part of this global movement. I think it's so easy, and I, I don't know if I can just speak for the U.S., but I'll speak about my experience at least, to get complacent and kind of forget that there's a larger world and be very focused on the issues that are domestic. And I think even with the media, the coverage that we get sometimes in the U.S. is just so focused on domestic issues that we forget that there's so many issues happening in the world around us. How do you, how throughout your career have you stayed connected 
to the causes that are important to you, you know, outside of wherever, whatever country you're residing in at that time? Well, um, you know, the, the, as I said, um, after, after the seven and a half years with that agency, I transitioned and joined World Vision International. Uh, and that's when we moved from the U.S. to Zambia uh, to work with World Vision in Luapula province of Zambia, where, um, you know, I was a team leader for a community health and development project uh, that was looking at the improvement of the health delivery system, uh, looking at uh, primary health care, training of community health workers, traditional bed attendance, AIDS education, health information systems, malaria prevention, nutrition, uh, and then the, the, the family planning. And the third component was uh, micro-enterprise, women in development, income-generating activities. Um, these are, these are uh, major issues that a number of uh, uh, countries are confronted with. And, and so, uh, given the length of uh, my career over the years, I think that you are absolutely right. I no longer uh, look at things uh, from a narrow perspective. I have a global heart. Um, I think it's important for us to reach out. But, but let me underscore the fact that uh, even working for the UN Refugee Agency, uh, we have a mandate to provide international protection uh, to and material assistance to people in need. Uh, we do that by, uh, you know, promoting voluntary repatriation or local integration or resettlement. Uh, we are non-political, we are non-commercial, and we are non-military. So um, we, we have a very... Uh, uh, totally neutral position and mandate in the work we do. You almost have to be connected to global issues and what's going on as a result of the work that you're doing. You have to be informed by what's happening around you in order to do your work effectively. Yes. Okay. So if, you know, for people who are listening who are interested in working at, at some of these competitive sort of international organizations like the UN, um, USAID, any of any number of these organizations, peacekeeping or otherwise, what what piece of advice do you give to people who are, you know, younger, maybe where you were in your 20s, about entering that field? Because I know a lot of times it requires uh, competitive graduate degrees, and then even with all of that, it, it it can be tough to get in. And it sounds like you did a number of internships but you also positioned yourself in places where you were exposed to. So, for instance, while you were at African World Vision, I, I thought I heard you say that even in Ethiopia, you were working with the UN side by side. So you're forming these connections and building these relationships. But what advice do you have to people who aren't there yet who do want to enter the humanitarian space? I think it's important, first and foremost, uh, to have the passion uh, for the work that one desires to pursue. Uh, passion will sustain you, uh, emotions will fade away. So, uh, the, the, for me, the number one requirement is passion. And when you have that passion, then you have to 
uh, have a sense of where you want to get to, how far you want to get to in the pursuit of that passion. Um, it's not right now uh, necessarily an easy field to go to get into because uh, there is it's it's saturated and a number of people are extremely interested. So obviously it's, not, it's going to be competitive, but no one should give up their passion simply because there is competition. Uh, if you if you keep working at it. Uh, and and people should not uh, overlook humble beginnings. Uh, I started as an intern for six months, and uh, during my internship, that's when I learned how to eat bagels, bagels and cheese, because I did not have sufficient money uh, to even afford uh, uh, a proper lunch, a proper meal. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have a family in the Washington area that gave me free accommodation and uh, also transportation. So I was only paid $50 uh, uh, a week, and I made uh, $200 a month, and that was only enough to, you know, sustain me in terms of my lunch. So all I'm saying is that where there is a will, there will always be a way. And for those who have the passion to pursue it, nothing should stop them from pursuing it because there are still a number of opportunities in the field of humanitarian work and development work. And every hand that is interested in contributing to the search for solutions is welcome. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, you talk a lot about passion, and I think it's always admirable to people like me the type of work that you do, um, you know, being in the humanitarian field. It hasn't been something I've been interested in as of yet. But for people who are, you know, who are drawn and driven to nonprofit humanitarian work, um, these passion-driven causes, social causes, What's the flip side that maybe people don't hear about as much that they also need to be equally prepared for? So, you know, you're with the UN, but there are still accountants, there's still software engineers, there's still IT, there's still reporting and presentations that you have to work on and written communications that you draft, memos. What are, you know, what are some other things maybe that people don't consider as they think about the field apart from the passion for the cause? We have all the various areas of of 
employment within the international humanitarian and development arena. Uh, you can enter as an IT specialist, you can enter as an administrator, you can enter as a lawyer, someone with a legal background, uh, and what have you. Uh, you can also enter with a degree in development and what have you. But, but I think um, if I were to look back, uh, perhaps something that I would do differently, and, and let me put it in context. Um, when I started my career, we moved from Washington to Ethiopia. Um, as I said, you were one year old. Aaron was not born. He was born later on. Um, and then we came back to the U.S., and then from the U.S. we moved to Zambia. And then from Zambia we came back to the U.S., and then we moved to Tanzania, from Tanzania back to the U.S., and then uh, moved back to uh, Ethiopia, and then Ethiopia back to the U.S., before Geneva back to the U.S., and then Geneva again, and from Geneva to, to this place in Juba, South Sudan. Um, I think one of the, one of the things that, that uh, I probably would have done differently is that you guys kept losing your friends because you would make friends, and then we will move and you will lose them. And uh, if I were to do it all over again, I would either encourage those friends to come and visit you, uh, or you go visit them more often. Uh, because later on, I realized that that was one of the major tools on you. You kept losing your very, very dear friends, and uh, it was not easy for you guys. So... That's one area I would consider. But whoever is interested in this career must equally be interested in rotation, moving from yeah. one camp to another, to another, to another. Yeah, well, and, you know, to that point, what would you say was the most, you know, I think you've talked about kind of the reward and personal fulfillment side, but what would you say has been the most challenging aspect of your work? I think the adjustment one has to make is that you come into an arena with people from different cultural backgrounds and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know and and blending that to uh, to be able to move forward harmoniously can sometimes be a challenge but uh, personally i can say that because of the uh, uh, you know the experience of growing up in africa uh, witnessing uh you know, the, the very complex nature of uh, underdevelopment challenges, uh, the excellent and proper educational preparation and background, and the transition from, you know, uh, uh, humanitarian relief, uh, emergency to development work. Um, I, I personally have had... Um, really no major challenges as far as the work itself is concerned. You know, we, we most of the, uh, well, the UN Refugee Agency in particular and most of the national humanitarian and development agencies that I have worked with in the past uh, depend almost exclusively on, uh, on funding uh, from outside voluntary funding and contributions. Uh, so the challenge is when you have uh, a situation where the, the, the caseload and the beneficiaries 
far outnumber the resources that are available, uh, we have no choice but to provide the barest minimum. And that is what makes the job difficult in the sense that uh, when you're dealing with individuals who are in dire need and the resources are insufficient, inadequate, to provide them even with the basic necessities, uh, there is no other choice but for them to live uh, at the very minimum standards of survival. And those are, those are the situations that sometimes uh, bring tears and pain when we observe them. For instance, right now, we're dealing with a total of 60 million people who are in need that the UN Refugee Agency is uh, 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 taking care of. Uh, they include refugees, they include internally displaced persons, uh, they include people who are stateless, and uh, the resources are simply not, not enough. So uh, you may go to a refugee camp where uh, the standards and the quality of assistance uh, may not necessarily be, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, on par with uh, other areas. But these are the things that sometimes can bring tears to our eyes and our hearts. Yeah, yeah I can imagine. So your work has afforded you a lot of travel. What's the most uh, fascinating country you've ever visited or, or a refugee camp? Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, I wouldn't use the word fascination or fascinated. I think uh, I have learned uh over the years, to feel at home wherever I am. And frankly, yeah. uh, even the worst uh, place that one has ever traveled to, uh, after years, bring wonderful memories uh, to, to my mind. So um, I really do not have any specific area that I would choose over another. Uh, it's for me, it's been uh, a tremendous opportunity that has been given to me to be a part of this global force that has been providing, uh, you know, humanitarian assistance and development uh, assistance to uh, many of the people who have been going through these difficult situations in life. Yeah, and I think that's something that probably Aaron and I learned as well, moving around a lot, is I feel like, at least for myself, I'm, I can adapt to new places very easily, and no one space really truly feels too permanent um, yeah. or too much like home. It feels like I could kind of go anywhere at any time. So thanks for that. Um, but to that point, how, you know, I want to talk a little bit, it's Father's Day, I want to talk a little bit about how you've balanced your responsibilities, both in business and to your family, and what your parenting approach has been in raising children and influencing their career ambitions. Because we know that, you know, parents or caregivers have a huge, huge impact on sort of the aspirations and just the people that their children become. So... Were you intentional at all about how you raised Aaron and I um, and how the way that you would raise us would shape our career aspirations and ambitions? 
well, I was not necessarily intentional, but I think after years of uh, wearing this global hat, uh, it's become an integral part of me uh, to, it became an integral part of me to uh to to get you guys to think globally as well um you know if you recall uh when we were living in Luapula province in Zambia um uh, you guys did not even there was not a, a, a single school in the area that you could attend that spoke english so mom ended up beginning to teach you guys in the garage, we just put a board on the wall in the garage, and uh, the two of you were her students, uh, homeschooling. And then ultimately, the villagers came and peeped through the gate, uh, the gate of the house, and uh, mom decided to open the uh, the doors of the gate and allow them to join you. And so before we left Zambia, we had uh, roughly some 35 to 40 students uh, that were ultimately Are you there? <laughs> yeah, is that your cell phone ringing? It's not mine. No, it's not mine either. It's obviously something on your side. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, there is a, it's mine. It's my phone. <laughs> There's another phone, the office phone. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I don't remember that, though. You said 30, there were 30 other people that joined. I don't remember that. Yeah, by the time, by the time, mom, no, you started with about a few students, and then when you transitioned from that school to Sakeji, mom continued that school without the two of you, because you and everyone oh, wow. went to Yeah. But when, yeah, when the, we were the board Zambia, mom handed over the school to the Catholic nuns. Oh, wow. Okay. Who, who were actually trying to persuade us to stay there and establish a school for the community. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. What do you always tell us? You tell us to put God first and that we can to always do the best that we can at everything that we try to do. Yes, I think that I, I always told you guys that, you know, put God first in your life. And, uh, and uh, see, I never restricted you guys. I always said, do what makes you happy in life. Um, because I believe that uh, I wasn't one of those parents who said you have to be a lawyer or a doctor or what have you. Uh, you know, I believe that the greatest joy in life is to do something that you really love to do. Uh, and that has always been my principle. Uh, yeah. I, I so hold that dearly. Um, so uh, you started out, you know, drawing things. You were always cute, always singing, always you know, always happy, always full of joy. And so I knew that it was important for you to do things that made you happy. Uh, and and similarly, that's what I told Aaron. Uh, but I knew that uh, you had the potential and the capacity. 
education prepares you to be ready for life. Uh, so it doesn't matter which field you are interested in and you pursue. The ultimate goal is to prepare you to be able to solve problems in life. And I think that you have excellent preparation. And uh, with that, I don't, I don't, I believe you can do anything in this world. And the sky is the same. Yeah, I think that's why Aaron and I are both very kind of creative and entrepreneurial. I think it's, you know, looking back, I think it's always been that I've always felt free to do whatever. I haven't felt pressure from you or mom to pursue any specific field. And I've always felt like you guys have always allowed us the room to fail at things as well and to try things and not not succeed or not do as well at them and not like them and move on to other things. So that's good. Well, my advice to young people is whatever you do, make sure you have the passion for it. Uh, do not go into something because of money, because uh, you can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have the peace about what you're doing and enjoying it, you cannot take that money to uh, Safeway or uh, any of the stores and 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 buy peace. Um, whatever you do, make a contribution to the world. There is a world out there that's suffering, that has excellent individuals, people who are just like you and I, but are regrettably uh, not as fortunate as you and I are because of the circumstances and the context they find themselves in. Um, they are equally endowed with all the capacities in this life. Uh, and a little extension of a hand of assistance can transform the lives of some of these individuals. So whatever you do, think beyond your immediate environment, beyond your immediate community, and go beyond the boundaries of wherever you are and look out in this global world of ours and make a difference in the life of other individuals who are out there. It's a beautiful field, the field of uh, international development, humanitarian assistance, and, uh, and uh, you know, refugee work and on and on development. So uh, all of you are invited, come in, determined to make a difference in the life of someone. All right, guys. Hope you enjoyed that. My dad hates the internet and social media, so it's huge, huge, huge for him to do this. Yeah. Um, but thanks. Love you much. <laughs> it was great. And you know what? In the spirit of the holiday, if you guys have any great career lessons you learned from your dad, share them with us um, at Job Blogs on the tweets and the yes. Instas. Let us yeah. know. Love it. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. 
What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. 